You're listening to a podcast of the Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Church in the city of Cork on the beautiful south coast of Ireland. We hope and pray that it will be a blessing to you. Um, so today what I want to talk to you is a particular experience that you and I encounter many times in our lives. Now, namely what that is, is the pursuit of the hidden God. And unfortunately, we launch ourselves into this pursuit, especially at a time when we suffer. Now, suffering today is quite immense in terms of, you know, the COVID and all of that. The anxieties are going up uh, in terms of cases and so forth. Um, I know that I suffer with anxiety myself. It's not easy when you enter into that particular domain. It is very difficult to navigate out yourself. I may even say it impossible. So this is what I want to talk to you today, where what happens when we tend to suffer, when we encounter unpleasant feelings such as that, um, be it the circumstances and whatnot. And um, yeah, we tend to feel that God is not there. So before I jump into it, let me just take you a few months back. And as many of you might recall, at the start of this pandemic, you know, the epidemiologists, the uh, government, and I'm putting plural here, and the scientists alike, they described the events as unprecedented. But truth to be told, what you and I haven't experienced in the last 18 months-ish, it's not really unprecedented times since humanity has suffered or encountered, um, um, I suppose, unprecedented times in the past. And if I can extrapolate that and extend it into our own lives, it is hardly a doubt that you and I have not suffered before or encountered unprecedented times. Now, I just want to be clear, my intention is not to de-emphasize the gravity, the seriousness of the current pandemic. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I am trying to say is that our lives as as whole are full of ups and downs. And, you know, we, we are called to navigate between thick and thin and everything in between. And how do we do that will greatly influence our spiritual outcome. It will greatly influence the spiritual well-being, so to speak, of those who are around us. And it's here that I want to draw your attention, just for us for, for, for a very brief, which is the core of what I'm talking today, is that when you and I arrive to death, as I'm calling it, as a, as, as, a, as a valley of despair, that when we descend down, and we have reasons for it, it's not that we're being unreasoned, but when we descend down into that valley, it is there that you and I start to pursue the truth that is underpinning the situation that you and I are in. It is there that we ask the question, why? Why is this happening? Is this because of my own actions? Is God angry at me? Oh, by the way, where is God in all of this? I thought he would be here. I thought he's gonna be talking to me, reaffirming me, holding my hand. Why am I not seeing him? Where has he gone? You see, in that particular moment, we start to pursue the truth that is underpinning your situation by asking the questions. You see, but the concept or the virtue or the idea or whatever word you want to use here of the truth or how you want to describe it, the truth is very, very, very interesting. Because even if the truth is nice, if I can put it, that pronoun there, and I say it's lovely, Everything is going to be okay. God is ever speaking to you, your situation, everything is okay. We tend to doubt. 
we leave the meetings, we leave the person we encounter who reinforms us that everything is going to be okay. But something, either with the reasoning in our own head, doesn't allow us to accept that truth. Now, <clears throat> you might not relate to that, but certainly you would relate to see how the truth is being handled today in the secular world, if I can put it that way. The truth has certainly been pushed into the background by those who oppose it. Or if they are unsuccessful in that, they will certainly try to redefine it. Now, thank you, Keith. Thank you, appreciate it. So, I just want to briefly touch on that. I'm not going to go into philosophical thinking, but I do want to say that the truth by its own definition is exclusive. And what that means is that anything that opposes the truth is automatically false. And that is powerful. When our Lord said, I tell you the truth, you can see the vibration it caused. You can see the turbulence it caused. Because automatically his statement is right, the rest of them are incorrect or so-called lies. Now you start understanding the gravity that he has put himself into. You see, when we cannot eliminate the truth, and even when we try it, the truth will always remain. As said by the Winston Churchill, the truth is incontrovertible, malice may attack it, ignorance may deride it, but in the end, there it is. Doesn't matter what you do, how we do it, the truth will emerge out. And when we try to redefine it, and we tend to do it, you see, again by the words of Winston Churchill, the truth is so precious that it should always be attended by the bodyguard of lies. We try to wrap it into something, something that it isn't, render it with the colors that isn't that not natural. You see, the truth is that in our suffering, the you might call it unprecedented, you might call it too much, but what happens is we tend to reason as to why the suffering has taken its, its existence in our own lives. And it's quite natural for you and me to deploy or exercise reasoning that we can navigate to the, the, the escape hatch to escape the flames of perceived doom. And when we fail, it is there and then that we ask the question, where are you? Where are you? I thought that you were going to be here with me. It's nothing more fitting than the story I'm about to read out. I think it's better that I just read it since it is heavy to digest the story. And I do apologize if it comes across like that, but I really want to pin this into your hearts that you understand the outcome of this message. And the story is told by, by Elie Wiesel, who was a survivor of the Auschwitz and Buchenwald concentration camps. Those who have read his novel, Night, will know what I'm talking about. It is hard gripping and it really takes everything within you to read it and to embrace it and to understand it. And the story goes, the prisoners were called to witness execution by hanging when the sun was settling on the horizon. At the sign of the head of the camp, the chairs were tipped over and a total silence throughout the camp took place. Where is God? Where is he? Someone behind me asked. For more than half an hour, the prisoners stayed there, struggling between life and death dying in a slow agony under our eyes, and we had to look him full in the face. He was still alive when I passed in front of him. His tongue was still red, his eyes were not yet glazed. I heard the same man asking, where is God now? And then I heard a voice within me answer him. Where is he? 
Here he is. He's hanging there on the gallows. Where is he? Here he is. He's hanging there on the gallows. Where is God in your triumphs? Right beside you. Where is God in your suffering? Right beside you. Yes, even there on the gallows. You see, dear brothers and sisters, it's nothing more paralyzing in our inner soul when the pain and suffering enters our mind, in our hearts, and we feel like the heavens has been wiped away with a sponge of doubt, and we find that our own hearts are staring in its own reflection in the mirror. You see, if the heart is full of pain, full of suffering, what do you think it sees in the mirror? Despair. No way out. Dear brothers and sisters, I cannot stress this more. Smash that mirror. Smash it. I'm reminded here of the story, and I'll try to be more articulate when I explain it. It is a story that has happened a few years ago by this rally driver. Those who are not into motorsport might not completely relate to it, but you certainly will relate to the outcome of that story and the meaning of it. Namely, that this person, Mark Higgins, was attending the race on the Isle of Man with his own car. The car is a sports car. He you know, took off on the, on the racetrack. Well, it's not a racetrack. It's literally an ordinary road where you're going extremely high speeds and you're doing it between literally houses and so forth, you know, little boring roads type of thing, you know. Nonetheless, as he's belting down the road at the full speed, the car starts to wobble just when he's exiting one of the corners at a high speed. And you might think to yourself, you know, he is going to crash, and you're right. The camera on the outside revealed that people are jumping away from the road and hiding behind the walls and whatnot because they have written him off. There's the camera as well on top of the bonnet, I believe, and you can see that the car at one moment is pointing to the houses at the left, and another moment is pointing at the houses at the right. Nonetheless, he's lucky enough, gets the control of the car, and he continues down the track. Not much to the story, but this is the point what I'm trying to make here. The point was when he revealed in the interview afterwards, where he said, if I looked any of those houses that the car was pointing at when it was wobbling on the road at 170 miles per hour, that's the direction I would go. It took everything within him in that drama when it was unfolding, when the car, when the tire, the tire was screeching, when the people are running away, he's goner, where you should be praying that the roll cage will do its job. He had to keep his eyes on the road as to whatever the car was pointing. Keep the eyes on the road. Why? There is a salvation. There is the way out. Not in those houses. Dear brothers and sisters, let me just go back very quickly to our eyes staring in its own mirror in reflection. In its own reflection. Make sure that your eyes are not staring into the cause, into the pain to it's causing you, but to turn the eyes to him yeah. who's the author of life. Today the philosophy and the clinical psychologists are arguing that there might not be hierarchies in our worlds and societies and so forth. However, even though we observe hierarchies across you know, the, the animal kingdom, the, the plants and whatnot, even the Amazon the forest, we can see the hierarchy. Where I'm going with that, you have to have your hierarchy right. It's God, the first and foremost and author of your salvation. Hallelujah. That's where you're aiming at. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians, we don't look at the troubles we can see now, rather we fix our gaze on the things cannot be seen. For the things we'll see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. You see, and I just want to return very quickly to the pursuit of the truth underpinning your situation. The reason alone, and listen to me very careful, the reason alone, or the ability to reason, will not get you there, will not get you to fix your gaze on the things that cannot be seen. That's where your salvation lies. Focus on the things in heaven and everything else will be added to you. But the reason alone will not get you there. Why? Because when you and I pursue the truth, you have to pursue it by acknowledging the person of Jesus Christ. You might have atheistic or atheistic beliefs. Regardless, you have to acknowledge the body, sorry, the lives of the Jesus Christ in your pursuit of the truth. The reason and the faith are required to work together in a tandem. If you start fragmenting that below that line, you'll end up with the reason alone or you're gonna end up with the faith alone. And you will pay the cost for that. It's imperative that you put them together. I see it the way riding a horse. Do not lean too much left. Do not lean too much right. Stay on the horse. Why? Because there are many angles at which you can fall. There is only one angle that you can stand. There are many angles at which you can fall. There is only one angle that you can stand. Stay on the horse. Do not lean too much to your reason. Do not lean everything to the faith. Why? What did Paul said? The faith without work is? Dead. 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 The faith is your fuel to propel the works, to propel your reason. That's what the faith is. It's your connection to the ultimate reality depicted in life of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what the faith does. It's your connection to propel the, your works, to propel your reasoning. You see, dear brothers and sisters, I'm not trying to be ignorant. I understand that the cognitive Abilities such as reasoning is God-given and I really want to stress that it's a God-given and it's embedded in us and it should be exercised as that When we look into the story into the Old Testament We see when people lean on their own understanding Into their own reason they pay the price there are many stories, but the one that kind of sticks out to me is the one um, Depicted in 2nd Chronicles the background of the story is King Ahaz, the king of Judah, is after suffering massive defeat. And what he does, what he do, is he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him, reasoning. The gods of King of Aram helped them, so I'll sacrifice to them, so they will help me. But those gods brought about his downfall, and the downfall of Israel too. King Ahaz denied him in his own heart and lean onto his own understanding. Huge price to pay. As we know in the scripture, it has been told many, many, many times, and, I, and it, it has to be told, told many, many times in the future. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Amen. You see, I... I kind of I have young kids, and you can see the, the, the children today, not even children, teenagers predominantly, and even the legs of myself. Um, life is not easy, life is hard. No doubt about it. 
many times when you're choosing the paths, they look like this spaghetti junction that you see there on the picture. Submit to him and he will make your path straight, dear brothers and sisters, regardless of the age. This is imperative. And I just want to touch, touch very, very quickly. I'm going to rush through it, so please bear with me with this one now. I fully acknowledge reasoning as its own way. Reasoning has helped to derive scientifically, scientific, by scientific, scientific methodologies, we are able to derive many innovations, many inventions. It opened the doors to scientific arenas and technologies and whatnot. And look, yes, they, they have been used in a bad way as well, but that's not the point. The point is once we use reasoning and faith independently, you and I pay the price. And especially when we put reasoning on one side, faith on the other one, and we put them into contradictory position, as suggested by Stephen Hawking, the theoretical physicist, who says, you must choose between faith and science. But why? Why do I need to choose between faith and science? You might be saying, where is this mathematical madman going? You see, faith versus science, as you might have heard it before, or, or science versus faith, or science versus religion, or science versus Christianity. When that question is posed before us, in front of us, we tend to start exercising mental gymnastics, try to find the answer for it. Let me give you, very, very quickly. Science versus faith is best described as a false dilemma. Follow me on this one. I'll be very, very quick and trying to be as articulate as I can be. False dilemma, let me describe what dilemma is and let me describe what the false is. Dilemma is seen there. Yours, you are presented with two options, option A and option B. Should you choose option A, you will deny option B. Should you choose option B, you'll deny option A. Which one are you going to choose? Are you going to choose science and you're going to denounce your fate? Or are you going to choose fate and denounce the science that tells you that 2 plus 2 is 4? You'll ignore that. What are you going to do? That's the dilemma. But the dilemma is false. Because the answer is not there. It's a cleverly positioned. Sometimes questions like that are being exercised in the court of law. I'm not going to go into the detail. But you are forced to answer yes or no. Regardless what you answer, you're guilty. Let me give you an example. Have you told your parents that you stole $10,000? If you say no, so you haven't told them that you stole $10,000. If you say yes, or you've told them that you've stole, stolen $10,000. Regardless what way you go, you're shot. You're guilty. This is the false dilemma. Let me give you the answer. Science in its own nature and the methodology that it's applied within the science where we use natural laws to explain to what is happening. Science is descriptive. It tells you how things are working. How does that internal combustion engine works? How does the jet engine works? What natural laws have been applied there? But it doesn't explain to you why. It's enabled to do that in its own nature. Soon as science tries to explain why we're getting into a very shady domain. Descriptive, not prescriptive. Let me give you an example. Who invented jet engine? Sir Frank Whittle or science? Physics. You might say both. Exactly. 
you need science the physics, so to speak, and you need personal agencies, such as Frank Whittle, to bring all together and make it work. So that you and I can be propelled across the sky to a different country. You see, when we are posed with these questions, we tend to struggle. And I think that um, Professor John Lennox, some of you, I assume most of you know of him, he is the uh, professor of mathematics of Oxford University, uh, a Christian, uh, a great bloke, extremely, extremely intelligent. And I love his saying on that. He says, just as I can admire the genius behind the work of engineering or art, the more I understand it. So my worship of the Creator increases, the more I understand that what He has done. You see, dear brothers and sisters, when we understand the complexities of human anatomy, who, or, or be it universe and so forth, that should not at any point deny the intelligent Creator such as God, but rather glorify Him. That was the standard Isaac Newton held. And many scientists today, the more I understand the complexity of the creation and the lives as we know it, the more in the worship of the Creator increases. And you and I might relate to that when we see a beautiful art and we go, oh, who did that? This is brilliant. Oh, did you do that? Oh man, brilliant, you're fantastic. You don't say, oh, this is fantastic. Oh my goodness, this is brilliant. Oh, I'll not even acknowledge you. You don't even exist. We don't tend to do that. We know the two of them are very related. One is the cause and the other one is effect. Let me just wrap up here very quickly to what I've been saying. Reason and faith are required to work alone. And you and I need to, to, gaze, to fix our gaze on the things in heaven. To see through those mountains. And you say, but how on earth do I do that? A valid question. Let me take you to the, my final part in my talk. What we're going to do now, I'm going to read the, 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 the story depicted in the, in the New Testament, in Acts, and before I jump into it, I just want to give you a very quick uh, background. I want to depict this into your hearts, into your minds, so that you get a better idea to what I'm about to say, and where does this story fits into this talk, and predominantly where it fits into the history as such, and the meaning of it. The story is about Paul entering into Athens and delivering the, 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 the Sermon on the Mars Hill. Many of you might notice, no, no, so Paul in that days, sorry, the Paul, back in those days, Paul was a fugitive and he withdraw to Athens as the place of safety. He was waiting for the two buddies, Silas and Timothy, to arrive. As while he's waiting for them, as you and I might do the same thing, we take, you know, a stroll down the streets and try to figure out what kind of a city is this, what is the culture here, and what is this all about here. <laughs> Athens in those days, <coughs> Athens in those days were called as the mother of Greece, as the, uh, sorry, the eye of the Greece, mother of art and eloquence. Four people have come out of Athens that has unalterably changed the history. Socrates' best student was Plato, Plato's best student was Aristotle, Aristotle's best student was Alexander the Great, who conquered the world but failed to conquer himself. These are heavy punchers. These guys were not messing about. These are geniuses who were trying to understand the ultimate reality that you and I live in. The questions such as origin, meaning, morality, destiny. Try to find answers for them. Origin, where did we came from? Meaning, what's the point of this life? Morality, how do we differentiate between good and evil? Destiny, 
What happens to me in you when we die? Now you're getting in a sense where has Paul entered. These are tinkers. Athens was built. The society within the Atlas was standing on two pillars. Pillar of reasoning and pillar of religious thought. It is said that back in the day, in those days, Athens has more deities than citizens. They had a god for anything and everything. For thunder, for stones, you name it. And now you have this man walk through their streets, a man called Paul, who is going to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to these Athenians' ears. Pretty, pretty high mountain to climb. And he's on his own. There's nobody there laying on hands, Paul, everything is going to be okay. I know, it is, you know these lads are very smart, but look, listen, just stick to the message. There's nobody there, he's on his own, he's a fugitive. He's like Jason Bourne with the phone that he's going to dispose in minutes. You know? He's on his own. And there he is thrown in front of these people. What questions do you think that they were asking? It's difficult to answer these questions. But something very, very interesting happens. And I'm going to dive right into Paul addresses Athenians and says, People of Athens, I see in every way you're very religious. But as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar, uh, altar with, with description to unknown God. So, you're very ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and it does not live in the temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives anyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. What is Paul saying? You see, he steps back and gives them the overarching answers, addressing the religious thought and addressing the reason by telling them you're very ignorant of the thing that you worship. Let me give you the answer. The God that you the gods that you have placed around the city, they're made by the human hands. They're the cause. They're sorry, they're the effect. But the cause is this God who is the God of the whole show. I'm going to wrap up with this. Worship team, if you can come up, please. And to turn back to where I started, hidden God. Your power and my power to navigate, to sustain ourselves, to go through the suffering that we encounter lies right in the midst of our position in God. Let me give you three points and summarize that very quickly. First point, accept the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If that work is sufficient for God himself, is sufficient for you. Don't argue, accept it, the forgiveness of sin. Second of all, Christ has won the battle. Christ has won the battle. We are standing on the grounds of a winner. Hold that line. Hold it. How? Point three. Christ has been placed in you 
for those who trust him, for those who believe in him. He is in you. Listeners, listen. Christ is not a commodity that is placed somewhere in the kitchen. When you need more love to give, more perseverance, more patience, you go home and you take a bit, a bit of it into your whatever vessel and you use that. That's not what the Christianity is all about. That's very clearly depicted in the Matthew 25 when, when, when Christ talks about ten virgins and the oil in their lamps. Dear brothers and sisters, how much oil do we need? We don't know, we can't foresee how long the trouble will last. We don't know how much we need. Maybe two hours, maybe five, maybe ten, maybe two years. Make sure that they are full. I know this is a sober reality, but it's the truth. And how do you achieve that? This is not like keeping with Jones and I need to climb the mountain to get there. Christ is not a deity placed far away and only elected have a uh, opportunity or a permission to access him. No, dear brothers and sisters, he is placed in you. That new person that has been so much talked about, that you are a new person in Christ, this is it. Namely, this is it. In a word, in a number, put it whatever way you want. This is the Christ in you. When Paul talks about in uh, Galatians 2, verse 19 to 20, I believe, where he says, it's not me who lives, but it's Christ. Now it makes sense, because no normal man would have gone through so much trouble and suffering without Christ in him. It's Christ in him. Enable him to go. And this is where you take your faith, that fuel, to propel you. To propel that you sit in Christ. You and I are called to sit in Christ. So that you can walk before the man and walk through the troubles. Namely, that you can stand against the enemy. Sit in Christ, walk before man, stand against the enemy.